Hello there, welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair, the penultimate Monday pod of the EFL season. I'm Ali Maxwell, and it's just me in the intro, at least today, because this episode is a little different to usual, because it's been an unusual and highly enjoyable few days for us. The main chunk of this podcast will contain the release of the audio from Not The Top 20 Live. That took place on Thursday. We banged on and on about it, didn't we, on this pod for the last few months. And you came in your hordes. Hundreds of you joined us at the Leicester Square Theatre. And quite frankly, it was one of the greatest nights of our lives. More on that later on. But first, the big footballing news from the weekend in the EFL. The League One playoff final was won by Sunderland beating Wickham 2-0 and deservedly on the day booking their spot in next season's championship. It was a beautiful day on Saturday. It was a sensational atmosphere. Sunderland came out the traps incredibly quickly. A really fast start piled on the pressure onto Wickham. We said that the most important thing in this game was whether or not Sunderland, if they did start fast, would get the goal that they needed to put themselves in front. Because frankly, no team can maintain that level of dominance, that speed of play or intensity of their play for all 90 minutes. And thankfully for Sunderland, they did get the goal. They didn't stumble. They weren't weighed down by history or pressure or anything like that. The man in the dugout deserves some praise, Alex Neal, with a few nice bits of selection and strategy, I think, ahead of this game. Firstly, and a difficult one for Gareth Ainsworth and Wickham to predict, a switch to a 4-2-3-1 formation from a three-at-the-back system, which they'd played in at least the last sort of 10 games. Elliot Embleton over Jack Clark was the surprise piece of selection as well. And that meant that Sirkin played left-back, traditional left-back position in a back four. Embleton on the left side of the three behind the striker, but playing very narrow, coming in off the left flank with Sirkin providing the width. That caused problems for Wickham. It allowed Sunderland, when they were trying to build possession and play through the thirds, a number of good passing options, particularly for the midfielders 9 and Corey Evans, but it also allowed Pritchard, their star man in the 10 roll, uh, to stay nice and high up the pitch to wait to get on the ball in the final third, rather than having to drop deep to receive it to feet, because Embleton coming in off the left uh, caused problems for Wickham's midfielders and fullbacks who didn't really know where to pick him up, and it resulted in the goal. The Wickham midfield three of Horgan, Gape and of Scowan found themselves kind of poorly set, didn't they? Horgan had run in behind for a flick on from a long ball, uh, but Vokes didn't win that flick on. Gape was bypassed by what was actually a fairly loose pass from Sirkin into the middle of the pitch. Corey Evans reached for it but, but didn't receive the ball but it kind of knocked Gape off balance and let 9 play past him into the feet of Pritchard and Embleton and then it was just Scowan protecting that back four. Unfortunately Scowan letting Embleton dip inside him far too easily but the most glaring error of all well, it tends to come from goalkeepers, doesn't it? They are the most vulnerable to clear and obvious errors. And Stockdale in the Wickham goal will want this one back. He didn't handle what was a powerful, slightly wobbling shot from Embleton from 20-25 yards. It was very close to his body, uh, but he never got the grip of the flight, the power on the shot. Did not get his body behind it. That put Sunderland ahead. Now, Sunderland were never going to maintain that dominance forever, and the goal was crucial insurance, I would say, because Wickham very, very slowly came back into it, bit by bit. They were by no means dominant, but the momentum did just shift a little bit with Sunderland uh, having a lead to defend. And there are two big moments from a Wickham point of view that could have us talking very differently about this game, I think. Firstly, Vokes had a big chance in the second half. An error from Bailey Wright, a ball over his head into Vokes. Two poor touches, really that allowed Patterson to come out brilliantly to save at his feet. And then the big moment for me, really, Brandon Hanlon breaking down the left-hand side for Wickham with two men in the middle heading for that six-yard box run and then two more streaking onto the edge of the box completely unmarked. Hanlon had options. Hanlon went for glory from the left-hand side of the box and it was a poor, scuffed strike, easily saved by Patterson. I'm afraid a very selfish and, if I'm being really harsh, a pretty dense piece of attacking play and decision making in a crucial moment and those moments are important. It was underlined by the fact that within a minute or two Sunderland iced the victory. Ross Stewart with a beautiful finish through the legs of Stewart. No doubt who deserved the win on the day even if there was a moment or two where better execution from Wickham could have had things looking different heading into the last 10 minutes. Sunderland the better side. Sunderland a championship side. 
I wanted to shout out a couple of performers. Anthony Patterson in goal from Sunderland, a young goalkeeper with an immaculate performance against a team that often caused goalkeepers problems in only his 20th league game for Sunderland. And then I want to shout out Wickham's response to defeat, really. A playoff final defeat, of course, disappointed, but hugely respectful. I've seen numerous tweets from Sunderland fans and staff saying how uh, pleased and, and grateful they were to how Wickham handled defeat here. They came at it from a position of great pride, I think, Wickham, at how they handled this season and in reaching the playoff final in itself being a big achievement. And I think it underlines something that Wickham have as a real position of strength compared to a lot of teams in the EFL. They've achieved something that's very rare. I think they know themselves, they understand themselves, their strengths and their weaknesses. They are realistic Wiccan Wanderers. And that might suggest that they aren't ambitious. That's not the case. They're still fiercely ambitious. They're still aiming as high as anyone. They just don't overreact when something like this doesn't fall their way. That is a huge strength as a club, that level headedness. And that means that projecting now onto next season, I see no reason why Wickham should fall away. I thought in particular that Anthony Stewart, again at Wembley, again in a big game, was excellent at the heart of their defence. Him, as an individual, did not deserve to be on the losing side. But overall, Sunderland in the Championship next season. I cannot wait to cover Alex Neal's Sunderland in England's second tier. It's the most enthusiastic I have felt about Sunderland, about their direction of travel, their management team, the, the general way of operating for a long time, for as long as they've been within our remit in the EFL, that's for sure. Now, a little later, we'll talk about the League 2 semi-final second legs. We'll touch on what happened there. But for now... Let's dive into part one of the live show audio. Quite frankly, on Thursday, we had the time of our lives. We celebrated six years of Not The Top 20 with hundreds of you at the Leicester Square Theatre. It did not escape us how many of you travelled far and wide and made such an effort to come and be with us on Thursday night. You brought an incredible energy, a level of humour, excitement and support and positivity that radiated throughout the room from the moment you all arrived and helped us, well, put on a show because it's a live podcast, but we felt very specifically we did not want this to feel like a normal pod, the likes of which you hear 80 times from August to May during the season. We didn't just want it to be me and George wittering on at each other. That, for me, would not have been right. We wanted to put on a show. And I think we achieved that. And I think that's mostly down to two things. The energy in the room from you guys that came, but also down to the three people that joined us on stage to give us a hand. They are David Pratton, our host, who steered things magnificently with the humour that we promised last week. We couldn't have been happier to be alongside David on stage for that. And he helped guide us through it. But also Jed Wallace, guest in part one, who was just magnificent. And Mark Bonner as well, the Cambridge United manager in part two. Both of them bought into it totally and completely and provided us with such joy, with such insight, with such humour as well. We couldn't have loved it any more. Thank you to everyone that came, uh, especially a shout out from me to Craig, to Matt and Barney, who I was eating duck pancakes with in Chinatown in London at around 1.30 on Friday, just buzzing off the pure adrenaline of the night. The good news is, for those of you who didn't make it, we've, we have got hold of the audio. Uh, it's not quite as clean as a normal podcast recording, of course, so please forgive the odd bit of talking over each other, of laughter, etc. Uh, but we hope this will give you a, a taste of the live show experience and hopefully that it might make you determined to come to the next one, wherever and whenever that may be. Let's begin from the point where we were joined on stage by our most popular podcast, podcast guest Jed Wallace who over the course of half an hour showed exactly why quite aside from his impressive performances as a footballer so many people are so fond of him as a person as a man as an entertainer Jed Wallace not the top 20 live coming up next it felt only right uh, that our first ever live show should include our favorite ever pod guest Jed Wallace welcome to the stage where are you Welcome, Jed. Hello, everyone. All you XG geeks out there, nice to meet you all. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start, Jed, yeah, yes. Exactly, yeah. 
think the back the back rows have just walked out. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. First and foremost, it's uh, a bit of downtime now. Before we get stuck into the specifics of, you're obviously going to announce tonight live on stage where you go next, which is nice for you to hold back. <laughs> really nice for you to hold back. But um, what, so season's finished. Bit of decompression time now. How has it been? Yeah, it's been nice. Just a stereotypical footballer holiday to Dubai. Just got back. How many um, footballers do you actually see out there at this time? Well, I had a good five. Speaking of five-a-side teams, I had a good one in my hotel. Um, <laughs> I had um, Callum Robinson, West Brom, Kenny McLean, walking around with his promotion medals. Uh, I had Alex Moe at Sam Johnson. So it was a bit of a West Brom party, really. Um, but sort of saw a, yeah, saw a few out there. I had a few beers with um, Kenny McLean. Lovely fella, actually. Uh, look forward to them coming down and getting 100 points again. No, nowhere near them next year. Uh, yeah, it was, it was nice. Let's have a quick chat about the championship, what you've seen this season. Very close, flirting with the playoff places come the end of the season. Can you give us a general overview? I mean, standard-wise, what we've seen from the outside looking in, we've seen one very, very good team. We've seen another one, safe to say, mm. fanny around for a little bit, but finally get themselves over the line, <laughs> didn't they? That is a technical football term. I've heard that so many times on a pitch. Um, what have you made of it overall? And, and Is there a slight kind of missed opportunity from Millwall's point of view, do you think? Yeah, I, I do believe that. Um, I felt this year was probably the biggest opportunity we had to get in the top six. Um, when you look at the, our squad, um, we have, in my opinion, the best shot stopper in the league in Bart. He's 34. Uh, Hutchie and Coops, the peak of their powers at centre-half. Um, obviously myself, 28 now. Um, Scott Malone, a lot of our squad at a good age. Um, it's difficult to sit here, really, probably to the people that don't understand Mill as much as, as I do, that they're probably looking from the outside and think Mill finishing eighth again, or ninth, I think we ended up, um, is a great season again. Um, but I, I know that, really, I think we could have done a little bit better. Um, that's not saying that no one did a good job. The manager's done an amazing job since he came. Um, we, yeah, we've got a great squad, but not being nasty, when you see a couple of teams finished above us, I think we probably had more than them. Um, but injuries at key times probably like everyone else, maybe affected us. Um, championship didn't feel as strong this year. I think normally you have three great teams. I think this year you just have one um, in Fulham. Uh, it's, it's been wide open, yeah, it's been wide open. Um, I said at the time, we lost 2-1 to Fulham. We could have lost 100 nil. when I said to the lads. <laughs> that will be the result of our season, losing 2-1 to them. And I think I was right. I'm trying to remember who you compared Ongisa and Seri to. Uh, on the pod. Yeah, it, was, it was silly because we played a geezer. He'd come on for 20 minutes. He had a cigar on, literally, for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then he went on loan to Napoli and then we, we loaned Alex Mitchell to Leighton Orient. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this can't be right. Like, yeah. Do you think that there should be... You, know, you talk about perception of Millwall finishing eighth and, or ninth and that being uh, an overachievement. I, I still think that there's that you guys get a little bit underrated, not specifically for this league position in, uh, in particular, but for where you've finished and the consistency of your performance since you won promotion from League One, which uh, we don't know all of the budgets, but pound for pound, it, it's one thing to do a Barnsley last season and get into the playoffs. There's normally only a couple of points between a team that finishes sixth and ninth. There's not a lot in it. You guys have consistently been in, in a position of, of strength, always hugely competitive, and I do feel like... I don't know, because you don't get over the dotted line, people just go, oh, well, you know, don't need to talk about them much. Yeah, I agree. Um, the reality is that Millwall is not a glamorous club. Um, and you only got to look at someone like, for me, I always say it, Sean Hutchinson. I, n I never see him pitting the list of best centre-halves. He's easily in the top five centre-halves and has been for the last five years. I never hear his name. Murray Wallace this year, for the Millwall fans that have watched him play, for me, he's been by far, by far our player of the season. And if the other Wallace was half as good as him, Mill might have got in the top six. Uh, <laughs> it, he was honestly as good as anyone I saw this year in the league. He, he was brilliant. Um, least funny Scotsman in the world, which is a shame. <laughs> yeah. Speak, Kenny McLean was funny. I played with Simon Ferry, Kev McDonald, funny Scottish people. We've nicknamed Muzzer the robot because he's got no emotions, um, which, which is maybe why he's so consistent. Uh, but yeah, it is. We, we don't get probably... The credit uh, maybe we deserve. We've, we've been solid. I think the days of people looking at Millwall as just staying up are gone. It's no longer a little, little old Millwall. Um, the club have done amazingly well. Um, one of the best chairmen in the country have really pushed the club on. Um, they've, they've got plans for a new training ground. Um, the wages, the, the, the everything's improved in my time at the club. It's got a lot better. Um, and even style of play. I think that's one of the yeah. things I should have mentioned in my question. is like the, the, the days of 
just diags to a big man, 4-4-2, etc. Yeah. But you didn't have a big man this season. Some of the attacking yeah. play was really good when you had everyone fit and available. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, we had Benick done great for us this year. Um, it's, it's a hard one for, for a Millwall where you try and we've got that spirit in the squad and you try and add that quality and we've brought in um, some big names probably for the first time in my Millwall time. And, and Benick certainly, he's been through a lot in his life. And to be honest, I've loved watching him do well. Um, there's certain people that you just want to see do well and he's one of them um, he's been a massive influence on a lot of the lads one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet and it's been great to see him do well for us and we've just, we just fallen a little bit short uh, away from home we've, we've won five away from home all season I think only Fulham have took more points than us at home but I think table don't lie and I think we were a little bit short in the end Always good to be able to, because normally when you ask a player about their manager, um, you know they've got to kind of be careful what they say, but when you're out of contract, maybe it's not the case. Uh, <laughs> talking about the gaffer, though, because he's the one, Gary Rowett is the one manager who we have worked with a couple of times, who, you know, his, the perception of him as a manager and as a man is, is the style of play is quite dour before Millwall, that he was quite a serious guy. I mean, it couldn't be less of the, you know, it couldn't be more of a light. He's like a pretty... Kept trying to banter me and Ali off the whole time. He didn't know who we were looking the whole time. He, like, he was a proper... I was almost in tears. At <laughs> he's, a, he's a proper... Stop, character. Gary, stop. Proper character. And, and then, as Ali says, it does feel like this, this season, whilst results have been good, there's been a transition in the way that Millwall are trying to play as well. How have you found it working under Gary? And do you think the way he is perceived, mainly as a manager, I guess, rather than a man, is, is maybe a bit wrong? 100%. Um, but it was the same with Neil. Um, when you look at Neil Harris's record at Millwall, uh, came into a relegated side... Playoff, fi uh, playoff final in League One, lost. Playoff final the next year, uh, FA Cup quarter final. Then we finished eighth in the championship and no one said a word. Yeah. It, that's what I mean about Millwall. It's not the club you maybe you don't get as much respect as you deserve at times. And it's the same for, for Gary Rowett. Um, he's done a great job at Millwall. Um, and there was times where I think a few fans are questioning him. And on that one, I'd, be, I'd say, careful what you wish for. Um, because as long as he's there... He's a very, very steady pair of hands and we've been very close a lot of the time this year and sometimes players like to hide behind managers and, and fans blame managers but we've had a lot of games this year where we've been nil-nil and I've missed a chance or someone else has missed a chance and that ain't the manager's fault. Um, we've, he's done, done very well to get us as close as we were and I just think ultimately key players didn't play as well, um, probably myself for a couple of months as well at the right times and for a club like Millwall, we need to be firing all season and keep our best players fit. And, and that didn't happen, which probably cost us, really. There's a great sense of perspective when you talk, Jed, and having followed your career from Pompey to Wolves and, and over to Millwall, you get to that certain age, don't you, where you start to understand being a manager is really hard. Yeah, so and if, hard, and yeah. if, you, if you were one of the things that he's not going to get pissed off about, that's quite a good thing, <laughs> position to put yourself yeah. in. Is that where you're at now? So 28 now. And apologies, I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying not to sound condescending. It comes mm. very naturally to me. But it, so, <laughs> Sorry for everyone involved in this. But in the sense of you do get to an age where you realise about your responsibility as a, an older pro, developing talk about Benick and what he's been through, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like the way you're talking about Gary Rowett there is you know exactly what goes into being a manager and what you can do to help that person be that manager, can't you? Yeah, it's hard. And I think, listen, I'm, I can be a pain in the ass at times. I'll be honest. That's I'm, what I was trying to say. Yeah, I'm, nice I'm, um, I don't hide my opinions. Um, I like to think I'm honest. Like if, if I think someone's tossing it, I'll, I'll happily tell them. But I'll also I always be the first person to say when someone's doing well. Um, and I think in, when I was sort of 22, 23... It was lucky I had a manager like Neil Harris, to be honest. Um, safe to say he pit me in my box a few times, um, which I think I needed. And like I say, I've still learned a lot now that it is hard being a manager. Um, and the manager put a lot of trust in me. And we have a little leadership group um, that, that he pit me in with sort of Hutchie, uh, Coops, Matt Smith when he was at the club and Alex Pierce. And I think I've, I've grown into that and I've definitely matured. And it's just natural. Like, you know, perhaps you played loads of games yourself. You, when you get older, you don't really care about yourself as much and it's, it's more about the team. Like when I think of my younger days and you're 19, 20, you, you're happy to lose 2-1 if you score and you can go on Instagram and be buzzing after. Like now, I, I couldn't care less. Like I just want us to win. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it's definitely, as you get older, it does change. Um, but yeah, luckily, Neil Harris and Steve Morrison nearly beat me up a few times there, so I learned the hard way, yeah. Frightening for any Steve, bloody hell. Yeah. Should we talk about some playoff action now? Yes. Championship playoff action. Uh, I know that we've got the uh, clips to run in as we talk about it. Super. So uh, we'll start with Nottingham Forest and Sheffield United. Obviously, you've been in Dubai, Jed. Not expecting you to have watched it and, and come up with some uh, Sky Sports EFL level analysis. But um, 
Are you pointing at me or Prats? I was looking around. I thought it was coming <laughs> on. That one. But it was an unbelievable tie. The first game was like a game of basketball, which Forrest dominated for the most part, took a strong lead back home, and Sheffield United came out firing. If you'd watched the first leg, you'd have never have really predicted what happened in the second leg. And I guess we're just constantly reminded that in the championship and in the playoffs, as much as it's a cliche, you should expect it to not be easy. Mm. Whichever, whichever team looks stronger in the first leg, for some reason, seems to be up against it in the second leg. It was an amazing tie overall. Incredible to watch. Um... Sheffield, like it's always hard to judge teams, and it's the same with Huddersfield. We played them, battered them at the Den, uh, probably best we've played all year. And it's the same with Sheffield, we've beaten them twice. So it's sometimes hard to realise how good they are when you watch them in other games. Um, but I, I, to be honest, watching Sheffield United, I was so impressed with Gibbs White and, and Die up front. Um, two young lads that really took responsibility on, especially in the second leg, and played like two veteran centre forwards. Did you know anything about Illiman and Jai from a Sky Sports EFL show called Twenty One Under Twenty One? Never, I <laughs> never listened to them two blokes. Whenever we they speak, we didn't say he was a good finisher, did yeah. we? That's just as well. Well, he scored that goal against Fulham, didn't he? And then I think <laughs> yeah. everyone sat up and took notice. And yeah, he's, he gives away as well. Listen, he was at Wolves when I when I was there, and he was coming through. He must have been about twelve at the time, and he was unbelievable. Um, him and, um, and I don't know if any of the Wolves fans here tonight know Coventry fans as well, Bright and a Bakari. Oh, yeah. Which is him and them two in training. Like, phew, do, you know, do you know when you... Why are you training you, with 12-year-olds? Yeah, that's, what, that's how bad, <laughs> that's what I mean. That's what I mean. You, you, honestly, you, when I play against people now and I'm like, he was a good player and then like, they're born in 2004. I'm just like, what? Like, how, how's that fair? Like, yeah. George, what did you make in the semi-final? I, mean, it's quite, I was going to say, um, of the, of the, the same semi-final, the, yeah, the yeah, blades. The yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I thought Forest were were very deserving to go through over the two legs because their performance in the first leg was, I think, so far clear of being a, a two-one victory. I think they could have been out of sight in the away leg, and I think it's natural given the circumstances. It's almost so difficult when you're sitting on a lead for that period of time when you've got the quality of the player that the Sheffield United have to to, to kind of keep hold of it. I've been a bit. It seems to be like a narrative at the moment amongst EFL fans, and, and I'm hoping that you know you guys don't fall into this, where there seems to be a willingness to kind of almost try and take away from the job that Steve Cooper's been doing recently. It seems to be like the done thing to be like, well, come on. I was saying to Pratt's earlier, I saw some people on social media saying like, they're only nine points behind when he took over for yeah. the playoffs. Yeah, nine points behind after seven games. They're on four points after seven games. What he's done, he's picked up two points per, two points per game over the course of you know, 39 games where they started with, one, with, with, with just one, uh, one win in the first seven. It's an unbelievable job what he's done. Well, what, what has he done then, George? Can you break it down in statistical terms or what you're seeing with your own eyes? I think there's a massive um, man management part of what he's done. I spoke to someone uh, who he worked with at Swansea um, when I was doing some research for something about six months ago who worked in the recruitment team, and he said that he's never worked with a manager who has been able to sell a club better than Steve Cooper ever. So he said that they had uh, Joel Peru, um, spoke to the agent. Peru was like, yeah, okay, I'm, you know, I'm interested in having a chat with you, but I'm not really sure I want to move over to the UK in the middle of COVID and, and kind of come back, come over on my own at my age. 20 minutes on Zoom with, with Cooper, and Peru was like, yeah, I'm in. Never, ended up not playing for him because Cooper left <laughs> a few weeks later. Um, but I think there's a massive part, and you look at his background in terms of, of the youth setups with England and you look at what he's done and the way that he got people playing for him I think he's someone who he's, he's definitely a very capable tactician there's no doubt about that but we're taking over a club where quite clearly the, the calibre of the players at the club was so much better than what they showed under Chris Houston for the start of the season I think just breathing some belief into what was quite a, you know, a young group of players you look at key players for them as well Brennan Johnson James Garner these are guys who are playing at this level for the, for the first time whose careers are on an upward curve and that's exactly what he's been, you know, what he was doing with England youth teams as well. So I'm, I'm a, I've got massive respect for him, and um, you know, we'll get on later to whether they're going to they're going to get promoted. But I do think, given what they did over the course of the season and over the two legs, I think they were rightful, uh, the rightful team to go through. The other semi-final, you mentioned your game against Huddersfield and how good your lot were. Are you surprised to see them where they are now, then, Jed? Um, no, because for me, they're the most all-or-nothing team in the championship in terms of. They're wild, like they're set up from a goal <laughs> kick. And I remember we were watching them and like you set up from a goal kick and I'll just see Toffolo just legging it across the middle of the pitch. <laughs> I'm thinking, where's he going? Like, they all rotate. It's That's the, your it's, man as well. Yeah, I know. And I'm <laughs> yeah. thinking, am I following him here? Like, do you know when you're doing that one at the gaffer? Like, and he's like, 
<laughs> yeah, it, they're, they're wild. And for me, they're the sort of team, if you catch them on the wrong day, they can really give you a doing. Um, but we, they're also a team that they're wide open on transition. Um, Sorba Thomas probably been the breakthrough player of the season. Uh, when you look at, you look at probably the refreshing thing, actually, from my point of view, I'm, I'm a fan of four at the back. And you think the only two teams in the top 12 that play that now are the top two, which is mad. Um, that Crazy. you look at the two wing backs, it probably been Toffolo and Thomas, probably been the outstanding wing backs in the division. Um, but with that, Thomas is a winger, similar to Jones at Middlesbrough. So there's a lot of space behind. And Scott Malone just ran behind him for 90 minutes, and that was really the key to the game. Um, and Forrest, obviously, they are a counter attacking team. It would be interesting how, how it goes with them being so wide open, but he, he's done a great job. A lot of players there, probably Naby Saar, um, Dwayne Holmes. If, if you said these guys were going to be top, top performers for a team finishing third in the championship uh, a couple of years ago, you probably would have been surprised, and that's a sign of a good coach. I think they've been different things throughout the season. They have adapted and evolved. I think you, you probably need to, uh, and I think it speaks to how insanely meticulous Carlos Corbran seems to be. How do you have the worst defensive record in the league last season? They conceded more goals than anyone else in the championship and go to be the sixth or seventh best defence in the league without changing manager. Normally, when we do our predictions uh, over the summer, there are certain things that you kind of have to assume, really, because you, know, that you have to have a set of rules, almost, that help you make your decisions. And one of them is, unless you're going to change your manager, you're probably not going to get from the worst defensive team to one of the best in the league. So for him to have done that just with a couple of signings, again, unheralded signings. But Tom Lees looks like Beckenbauer at the moment. And, yeah. I wouldn't and have Matt Pearson as well, yeah. The last Matt few Pearson. years and, at uh, and look at Nichols so, as well. It, it's, uh, it's amazing. But I think, you know, we're going to come on to the final in a second. I think the semi-final, we should probably give credit to Luton, just like we should have given credit yeah. to Sheffield United for giving it an unbelievable go and much more than I expected. Um, dominating parts of it, having more of the balance of play for, for long parts of it and just... Key Being decisions, possibly, maybe, going against them? Uh, no, we didn't think so. I think key decisions going went against Huddersfield. I think they were the, the two penalties. As you know, George, they even themselves out over the course of a season, don't they? <laughs> I'm a, you've actually listened to the podcast. <laughs> it's, it, was a, it got clipped up and sent to me on something, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I, I think Luton do deserve the credit. I think the, probably the, the standout 45 minutes from any of the four sides in this championship playoffs was Luton's first half performance in the second leg. They were unbelievable. The, the level of pressing, especially when you consider that it was um, you know, Danny Hilton who, and uh, Robert Snodgrass. I know Hilt is obviously a player who loves to press, but when you're thinking about um, you know, putting out a high-pressing side away from home, you know, they the aren't necessarily the ages that you're looking for um, to do that. They were unbelievable. They didn't give Huddersfield a kick. They should have been ahead in the game. And they've obviously been done uh, by a Sorba Thomas set-piece, which was absolutely you know his set piece ability is is quite clearly elite and he'd done it about five minutes before and that goal um possibly should have stood and Sonny Bradley being fouled mm. didn't make any difference to the to, to the decision to well to the goal either because he was behind the play so and with Luton as well you know you talk about unheralded uh, transfer business I was in Glasgow the day that Cameron Jerome and Henry Lansbury signed for Luton and uh, no, you know, obviously we uh, we know parts of the Luton recruitment team and have a massive respect for him. And uh, and I must say, when that came out, I looked at that thinking, this, you know, for a team who we like, we see as being pushing for uh, for you know dark horses of the championship, this is a bit of a surprise. But two inspired signings, two guys who've added like massive squad uh, squad depth, quality where needed, and. You know, probably seen as not the kind of signings that would go under the radar, basically not the kind of signings that teams in and around the area of the, the championship would normally, would normally get. And that's where I think recruitment can be so impressive. It's not always about finding the 22, 23-year-old youngster from League One, League Two. Going out and finding players who, for some reason, maybe uh, aren't necessarily still performing or still playing for teams where their talent dictates that they should be, irrespective of their age. And that's what Luton managed to do really well. Just before we get to the final, we've got to mention, obviously, the uh, penalty kicks between Nottingham Forest Jed and Sheffield United. And we had the pleasure of being there, and it was, it was a wonderful atmosphere. Obviously, other things came into it, which has been dealt with. Um, I've never seen a goalkeeper dominate a penalty shootout like Brees Samba did. There's a word for it, which is probably bit early to say right now but give it half an hour and I will um, but he, he out thought my 10 year old nephew's here so he is and yeah. now you warned me about that because it was expletive late in the introduction but I had to change the whole thing and be really <laughs> nice um, but the the way that he 
he took control because in theory, uh, and, ne- and this is from a man that never took a penalty in his life and wilted in training whenever he got, he got asked to take one. In theory, it's you hitting the ball as hard as you can into a quite a big goal against a small fella. But he actually took it on and said, you've got to beat me. You've got to mm. beat me. And he completely dominated it, didn't he? Yeah. He is a bit of a maverick, isn't he? Which is a bit weird to say for a goalie. Um, but I think back to when we played him at a den. So a high cross come in and he's like, he could have just caught it. And he's gone for like the Michael Jordan over the hand around the back. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, he's a bit mad. Um, but yeah, it was great, great performance from I think from a, Obviously, I've took a few penalties in my time. Um, from Norwood, especially, like he smashes it in almost in the top corner. And if a keeper saves that, you're thinking, Christ, I've done everything I can. Um, and obviously, what I always admire from goalies, uh, and obviously in the role reversal in the league, I think Brennan Johnson took one against Fodderham, and it was the same result where they just stand still and save it. Mm. Um, and, and fair play to him. To be fair, they're both good goalkeepers, the pair of them. Um, yeah, I actually fancied Sheffield United in the, in the, in the shootout. I think they're. For the most experienced squad in the league, oldest starting eleven in the and league for, this year. And Wes's record in yeah, penalties I, I, in the I fancied him, um, and I, I was surprised. Um, but Brendan Johnson, just wow! Like the pressure that he's played under all season. Love watching him, and then he just twenty-year-old just come up, just stroke the penalty, and, and it's just fine. Like very, very impressive. Um, Did you know play. he's the son of David Johnson? Not a lot of I've heard. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, so I don't think Sky Sports knew either. In the crowd, they kept going on this guy in the crowd. I don't know who that was. Yeah. I'll be honest, most of my prep was trying to find out where the hell he was sitting. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. Counting Bin- along the seats. Yeah. It's been on Sky more than it was when he was playing. Um, <laughs> let's look at the final then. Do we Predictions time. Yeah, well, yes, in a second. But do we have a favourite? Do we have an underdog? Do we have... I think Forest are unquestionably favourites. Okay. I mean, they're the bookies' favourites. But I think also, even if you're a Huddersfield fan, you have to accept that given the run they've been on since whatever it was, October, um, it's going to be very hard... Well, they, they are more likely to win. Um, but having said that, I do think Huddersfield have a massive part to play. I think because of some clowns uh, predicting they would struggle uh, at the beginning of the season, because, because the perception being that they weren't really set to challenge. And I think because they're Huddersfield as well, I think a lot of people seem to forget that they finished third on merit. They've been very, very good. They've, they've put in massive performances against good sides. It's always that game against Borough that sticks in my mind from, from uh, Easter Monday where they went 2-0 ahead and then just carried on on the counter, just creating chances at will. So I think Forrest are favourites, but I do... I mean, I would say I think it's going to be... I mean, playoff finals are always tight, but I think Huddersfield have a massive part to play. And, and on their day, as Jed says, they're all or nothing. They could easily go out there and win. Yeah. I'd like to know, if, uh, while we've still got you, a tactical question. When you've, you've played against these two teams twice this season, you know what uh, the manager's told you to beware of for both teams maybe the avenues that might be of interest might be where they're a little bit weaker um, pitting the two against each other where do you think for Forrest maybe they could have some joy where do you think for Huddersfield they'll be thinking you know what we get him isolated we could have some joy here yeah it's it's going to be battle of the wing backs isn't it really when you think definitely when you think of Thomas and Toffel I think between them they've got 29 goals and assists which is ridiculous wow. even compared to I think low spent to everyone's talked about all season and rightly so and Colback, I think they got 15. So typically in 3 4 3, 3 5 2, it's how good your wing backs are. One good um, one for Colback, wasn't it? Yeah, well, whatever was it? I think that's a goal and an assist. I think terrible now. Cross, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, I think from Huddersfield's point of view, like I said, they are wide open. Forrest are happy without the ball. And even thinking back to Steve Cooper's team at Swansea playing against them, if they score first, you're in trouble. Um, they're very happy not having the ball and obviously the pace they do have on the counter attack. Yeah. My, my worry would be if Thomas does start for Huddersfield. No disrespect, you look at the benches and we spoke earlier about Davis, could, he could be the difference yeah. for me. Um, Huddersfield, they don't have a lot off the bench. Tired legs, imagine bringing on a fresh Davis with 25 minutes to go. Mm. I think that could certainly, even Mighton as well, Lolly, a little bit of pace off the bench could make a difference. I really want to make a case for Huddersfield winning. I, I do think they're still, just in the context of this game, being a little bit, uh, whether it's underappreciated or underrated, whatever it might be, I could 100% see Carlos Corbrand putting together the perfect game plan like he has done so many times in big games against Borough, winning at Craven Cottage to counteract what Nottingham Forest do. Forest's massive advantage over everyone else in the league is speed, is the speed of Johnson and Spence down the right-hand side. There are ways, you know, they, they say it's the thing that scares defenders the most, the thing you can't teach, but I believe tactically there are ways where you can at least mitigate against it, and I'm sure that Corbran, as much as any other manager in the league, will do a good job of doing that. I think they've got the set-piece advantage, 
Forrest looked a little bit iffy defending set pieces against, uh, against Sheffield United. This is me making a case for, for Huddersfield to win it. I, I think when you look at the fact they've lost two of their last 28 league games, Huddersfield, two of 28, Forrest have lost six in that time, albeit picked out, up more points and more wins. I could easily see this going all the way to penalties. And at that point, I don't know. I think I'm going to go Huddersfield on pens. I love that you're predicting the penalty winner as well. It's amazing. Uh, I, Niche. Niche. I, um, I think it'd be marginal Forest. I, I basically think you have to also look as well at kind of the intangibles or, or, or little ways that you can see uh, a team getting an advantage. And I, you know, often we talk about teams who uh, lose a playoff final coming back next season and doing very well. Obviously, that isn't the case with either of these two, but you've got Steve Cooper, who lost the playoff final last season um, with Swansea and was not in the semis the year before. You've also got Brennan Johnson, who tasted Wembley heartbreak last year as well in the, in the League One playoff final for Lincoln. Um, so you've got two players, or two, probably the two key figures, I guess, for Forrest in terms of what they're trying to do, who've, who've tasted that. And then I think the Keenan Davis uh, line is, is so important as well, where he could be a massive difference, whether from the start or late on. And then similarly, you know, you've got uh, senior players in Zink and Argon and Cook, who won promotions recently. Whereas it's just hog, really, with Huddersfield. You've got a lot of players who've never been in this situation before who are doing it for the first time. So in those ways, and also Mike Holden, who's here, pointed out the, the small things that Cooper does sometimes, such as keeping his players off at half-time in, uh, in the second leg of the semi, when it was really boiling over, and it felt like probably into the tunnel things really could have spilled over. But Cooper was there, and he told his players to wait until the blades had gone in, wait until they went in, and then sent in his team as well. And just small things like that. And Still I think, got battered in the second half. And I think, yeah... <laughs> Did they go through? Uh, and I think, and the, um, and also the cup games as well. Like watching that that Arsenal Forest game in the FA Cup, where they they were just they were just the better team. Like they were just the better side and managed to completely. And they didn't play. They are a counter attacking counter attacking side, but they went into that game stopping Arsenal from playing. Played a really high line and did it so effectively. Um, in terms of how the game's going to play out, I think both teams are so good at protecting leads that whoever goes ahead, it's going to turn into a proper low block against a team trying to, trying to attack. But yeah, I think Forest marginal. Jed Lee? Forest, Huddersfield, Jed? Mm. <laughs> got to remember, Forest tried to sign me in January. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would, um, I, I, I agree with George. I think first goal is, is huge. Um, I would say 2-0 uh, Forest with Davis to score off the bench. Before we let you go, Jed, um, just heard sound the contract there. Um, it is, I mean, it just just give us a little bit, and I, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you for, for details and teams or whatever, but 28 years old. Feel free to offer, though. If yeah, you but would. if you want to, yeah. We'll, we'll, to we'll play hangman up here and work out where you go next. Um, but this... This, just give us a bit of insight in the background or behind the curtain of what it's like to be a footballer at 28 that's out of contract, looking to move on, looking to maybe stay put. It's, it's, it's a time of your career where you've got to make the right decision, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's an important time um, for me. Uh, I've been at Mill six years now, um, which is probably rare in modern day football. And um, I've stayed there a long time and I've always appreciated them taking me out of uh, the freezer at Wolves when I was no one else would have really wanted me um, and I, I never lost sight of that and didn't jump ship at first chance and I really really to be honest with you I've not thought about it this much because I really be just believed that this season we were going to get in that top six and I, we would have had a chance and then obviously things would have just took care of themselves um, whereas to be honest now just going to sort of I'm getting married um, in 10 days so yeah the lucky girl is out there somewhere there she is yeah uh, so yeah, we just I've always said probably from February March time I said I just wanted to finish the season, see where Mill finished, um, get married, and then think about what I'm going to do after that. Um, and that's not really changed. Um, what I would say is I've always loved my time at Mill, and if that carries on, I'll, I'll be more than happy with that. Um, we just have to see what happens. And yeah, it's an exciting time for the club moving forward. And you continued throughout it all. And the, the local press in particular just obsessed with, with any news item that had Jed Wallace and contract in it, even if there was no news, which there wasn't, because you quashed it. You made you sort of set your stall out at the beginning of the season and said, I don't want to talk about it. I want to focus on this. We'll wait till the end of the season. And you kept getting goals and assists, as you have done for six years at Millwall. Um, one of the most, probably the most consistent performer at championship level, uh, in an attacking sense, certainly, since we've been covering the pod, which we admire so much. And I did just see this morning, I don't know if you saw this, PSG, right? Similar situation with Kylian Mbappe. 
reportedly have offered him essentially to be the owner of their sporting project. I, I think this is complete bollocks, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> I'm going to quote the tweet. They'll allow him to change coaches, decide on the players he wants, including the huge economic offer that's on the table. Could Millwall offer you to be the owner of the club? <laughs> Would that change anything? Well, I, I do live an hour away from the stadium, so if you see uh, Millwall relocated to Cobham Wanderers, then you, <laughs> and you, know, you know I might sign. Uh, but no, to be fair, Mill, they've, what I would say, they've been class the whole way through, um, never put any pressure on me. The manager's been top draw. Um, I'm a huge admirer of the chairman, to be honest. Um, I'll be quite frank with you, he's changed my life. Um, f for me, my kids and everyone, um, he, he's a great man and Mill are lucky to have him. Um, I think sometimes people think that you want to move just because you want to get an extra few quid in your pocket. Um, it's, it's not like that for me, because uh, if it was, I would be on a flight over to Istanbul having lamb sheesh for <laughs> breakfast every morning. <laughs> Um, so my, my old, I've never ever made a secret to anyone that wants to, to hear it that I, I want to have a chance in the Premier League um, I was playing with one of my best friends Connor Cody he was playing right back for Wolves in a pre-season game at Port Vale and, and now he captains England so for me I believe I can do it um, I want to play at the highest level I can whether that's with Millwall ultimately this season I dreamed of, of that happening it's not been the case so just going to get married see what happens and I'll just keep trying my best with, with the football or the marriage? Bit of both. <laughs> Good. It's the best way to approach both. Definitely, With yeah. an open heart and the ability just to say yes to everything. <laughs> anyway, enough of the Northern humour. Jed, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think you'll all agree. Honest, insightful, wonderful guest. Okay, we've got Mark Bonner's appearance on stage up next. But first, the League Two playoff semi-finals. Well, we know the final now. It'll be Mansfield against Port Vale. The Stags held off Cobblers. A magnificent defensive display on Wednesday night to hold on to their lead from the first leg. Nigel Clough deserves credit here, making three changes, showing off both the strength of his squad and his ability as a manager to adapt and make tweaks. You cannot say anything other than the tweaks that he made, albeit defensive in nature, were absolutely the right ones. Bolstered their back line where they'd looked a little vulnerable away from home this season. They looked anything but. Scrapping for everything, winning the majority of their duels and getting the job done. They'll play Port Vale on Saturday because on Thursday night, just as the live show was finishing and as we spilled into the sports bar in the Empire Casino next door, Port Vale beat Swindon 1-0 in a crazy game full of tension and drama. James Wilson with the equalising goal in the first half. Wilson also with a few other great chances to give Vale the win in regulation time, but it wasn't to be. Flanked by 50-odd, not the top 20, live audience members, we watched the penalty shootout in the sports bar and it was incredible, to be honest with you. 2-1 to Swindon. After Vale had had three efforts and Swindon just two, they had a chance to go 3-1 up with two shots each left. But a reminder that when I dub someone as box office and at any given time, how many do I have? Four or five across the three leagues? It doesn't just mean they're amazing players. It doesn't just mean they are among the best players in the division. There's a big part of the ingredients that go into being called box office, which is just about footballing theatre, about always seeming to be involved with everything, whether it's good or bad or controversial, whatever it might be. And who is League Two's box office player of the season? Well, Harry McCurdy of Swindon Town and... In this instance, it wasn't because he was thriving. He stepped up to take a penalty against his former team to put his side Swindon in a commanding position and he smashed it over the bar and grinned. He grinned, he laughed, he tried to play it cool as he walked back to the halfway line, but that miss made Swindon players lose their cool and it gave Vale's penalty takers confidence. Charlie scored. Lewis Reed scored for Swindon. Then Tom Pett had to score to keep Vale in it and produced a magnificent penalty, posting it into the top corner with precision under pressure. Uh, Josh Davison still had a shot to win it for Swindon, but it was poor. It was saved. After that, Garrity and Conroy traded successful pens, as did Gibbons and Egbo. Mal Benning scored for Port Vale, 
but Ellis Iandolo, the Swindon left-back, blazed over. Port Vale headed to Wembley after 210 minutes, couldn't separate the two teams on the pitch. Congrats, Vale fans. We will see you there. It goes without saying that, that some of the stuff that happened during and following the pitch invasion was as predictable as it was deplorable. Um, we don't want to add too much to the conversation because we don't think just adding our voice in condemnation adds a huge amount to any discussion that is had. As far as I can tell, um, the right way to think about this stuff uh, is the obvious way, is the way that the majority of people think about this stuff. Uh, my main emotion around it all, to be honest, at the moment, not just when it comes to Vale and Swindon, but the number of other incidents we've seen recently, I'm completely demoralised by it. I'm completely demoralised by it. It saddens me. It sucks energy and enthusiasm out of me um, when talking about this stuff. Um, I hate it, to be honest. I'm sure many of you are the same. Um, let's focus on some more positive things. Later on this week, we will be doing a proper preview of the Championship and League 2 playoff finals. But next up, we'll bring you part two of Not The Top 20 live. And after George and I had said goodbye to Jed Wallace, after we'd been forced by David to explain our worst 1-24 to pre-season predictions, which inevitably included the club that we've got wrong more than perhaps any over the last two years, Cambridge United, someone was pulled out of the crowd. Their manager, Mark Bonner, joined us. And he did not disappoint. There's another team that's done extremely well, not just this last season, but the season before. Mm. We're going to get your insight into it in just a second. But first, let's get the man on here on the stage who knows way more than you two about Cambridge United. It's Mark Bonner, the boss. Hey. Our full fans are in. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Were they the ones that you came on the train with, did you say? That's the ones, yes. <laughs> yeah. Up the Abbey stand pod. <laughs> Mark, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming along. Thanks um, for having me. The, the way that... Sorry for predicting you were going to get relegated as well. We didn't quite get to that, but I don't know if you knew... Explain yourself, <laughs> Did you pin it up on the dressing room wall? But it just goes to show, you're there at the Coalfest, you're there every single day, knowing what your players are like, knowing what the club's like. We are here to pass judgment. We are here to talk about what the club can possibly do. What's it been like right in the eye of the storm? No, I think when the, when, the, when the predictions come around, there's always a bit of banter in there about where, where you're going to be. We were the team last year that was never going to do anything and was always going to fall away. And then the team that was going to fail this year. And it's, it's nice when you can try and prove those things wrong along the way. But like, in fairness, you go off of... Like, why would you put us higher than that? Budget really low. Lots of players not played at the level. Myself, never been at that level. First time there for over 20 years as a club. Um, lost our leading goal scorer to Wrexham. So, like, there's an understandable nature as to why you make those predictions. But I'm absolutely delighted that we smashed that prediction to bits. <laughs> One of the big things, Mark, weighing it all up, was the aforementioned Paul Mullen, who scored... 400 goals uh, in League Two uh, and then dropped down two divisions to join Wrexham, highlighting how strange this football pyramid is uh, and, uh, and not great in some ways. Anyway, uh, he was, in our eyes, a big loss, not just because of the goals, because, of course, you can buy other strikers, you can put someone else up front who can do a similar job, but he, he just in terms of shot volume last season, I think in terms of all the teams in League Two, there was a reliance on Mullin, or rather he was the one to, to actually take the shots and, and clearly was finishing at such a high rate. And we felt like that having been such a big, big reason, not the only one, big reason of getting you guys up in the first place, that losing him was going to be something of a concern. As it was, Ironside and Smith stepped up so much. Did, did you have a feeling that they would do that? Because, you know, you, you gave them a proper chance. You didn't look to buy someone necessarily to come in and replace him. No, I mean, we signed Sam, which we knew was going to be a good one. Sam had been with us on loan before, so we knew him well. Um, we actually changed system this year, which we thought we were going to need to do. And we played with a front two with Wes behind, Houlihan behind the front two quite a lot last season, or the season before in League Two. Um, and we're able to dominate a few more games than we perhaps were going into this year. So we knew we'd have to change the style of things a little bit. And like, you can never say you're going to replace those goals. He had a, a record scoring year for the league and for the club, like going back years no one, had, no one had done that in our club for, for years 
And the other thing is you're not going to replace 34 goals because the reality is we were never going to score as many goals as a team in League One as we scored getting promoted out of League Two. So you've just got to make sure you are a goal threat. There were, there were not that many games that we didn't score in this year. So I think we, we managed to do that. And the goals got shared around a little bit. Certainly two of the strikers added massive numbers, 20 and 17, I think. Harvey Nibs with nine, Adam May, midfield player with seven. So we spread the goals around a little bit and we have to try and find another way to keep doing that now. Quite often with the FL fans, you hear the need, especially this time of year, to bring in a 20-goal-a-season striker. And you see clubs bringing in players and fans will be up in arms because he's only scored 17 goals in his last five seasons. You've clearly shown in the last two campaigns that you've been able to take strikers who haven't had great goal-scoring records previously and get them to be fairly prolific. Is there a knack to that? Is there anything you're doing in order to get these guys stepping up or are you just getting a bit lucky? Unbelievable luck, honestly. <laughs> Unbelievable luck. When you started talking earlier saying about the two guys that have never kicked a ball and have got no idea, I thought that was my intro. <laughs> um, look, I don't know. I don't know how we've done it. We've got brilliant players, a, a, an idea of how we want to play. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that lots of the players that we've had have had the best year or two of their careers. I think that's because it's what we've planned for. And we've created a bit of a team that's got some momentum. But trying to keep that going in this monster of a league, and it is for us, that it's, it's a real challenge, but we're, we're enjoying the challenge. We've loved it this year, certainly, and um, yeah, it's, it's been one that we're uh, trying to adapt to and, and change and evolve our style of play towards. I mean, I heard you speak earlier about um, the old days of big diagonal passes to a front man, and I'm thinking, what do you mean? What's wrong with that? Um, maybe I'm stuck in my ways, or maybe I'm ahead of the next curve, and soon I'll be an innovator. <laughs> Every action has a reaction. That was, that was specific to Millwall, to be fair, and specific to Steve Morrison, who uh, was very, very good uh, at the uh, forefront of that particular tactic. You touched on it there, having not played uh, professionally yourself. Um, I think in this room, very specifically, more than anywhere else in the country, I think we can say that you're basically living all of our dreams. <laughs> it's football managership. <laughs> you, you, you watched Cambridge United in the stands as a season ticket holder as a, as a kid. You watched some amazing times. You've seen some really, really tough times. You have dedicated yourself to the craft of coaching and management and player development uh, in a way that must at times be really difficult and maybe quite lonely. And there aren't that many opportunities out there. And, and now you sit two seasons in, um, having done better than almost anyone I can remember in their first two seasons of management, certainly since we've started doing the podcast. I mean, f me and George feel like we're living a dream to an extent, and I spend a lot of my time, like, sort of celebrating on my own. <laughs> do you do a lot of that? Do you just sort of, you know, bye guys, see you, see you tomorrow, and then close the door and just give it a little... Yeah, scarf out the window for the drive yeah. home. Do um, you give a little jig, or, or as, the, you know, as the forefront of the club, as the leader, as the talisman, presumably you can't really be seen to be showing that. It's not really leadership I, material. I get asked it? it all the time, how do you find being a fan and being the manager? And I just say, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just not. I've, I grew up as a Cambridge boy, watched on the terraces, um, so it's a really romantic story, and I don't take that journey for granted at all. Um, but it is impossible to be a fan and a manager, because the two behaviours just do not mix. Erratic emotion, going on the journey up and down, that's fanatical behaviour. be weird that. if you started shouting Bonner out in the dugout, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you just... Look, you Inappropriate as well. You, you, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. There's, there's, um, there's someone in tonight who's a Cambridge fan and she's got a T-shirt made and uh, it says, Mark gives me a Bonner, which I think Very is good. fantastic. So thanks for that, I appreciate it. And that's when we were we were chatting before he came out and, and, and looking at what Cambridge had done, Mark, and the way that you're talking as well. Because having spent time in and around players and and and, and former players and former teammates that have become coaches and managers, and the way that you talk, there's a, there's a real kind of there's a real pleasure to it because it is a thankless task. I mean, your decisions that you make every single day, and especially even more so during 90 minutes, are constantly questioned, aren't they? How do you manage that mentally? How do you man manage it emotionally? Because, as Jed was talking about before, kind of maturing a little bit and seeing a manager in a different way, players, and I can say this from experiences, they're, they're always looking for an excuse, aren't they? They're always looking for a reason why they were crap today. It wasn't me, it was someone else. So, as a manager, you've got to manage all of that. Do you see it as a challenge? Is it just 
part of the remit of manager, but you, you've got to manage upwards, sideways, downwards. It's all on you. Yeah, it is. And, and, and that's why you've got to try and get good people around you, firstly, as staff, support staff and coaches, um, but good players around you as well in terms of like guys that you know aren't going to let you down and are going to take some responsibility. And I think that's really important. Um, us knowing where we are in the food chain and who we are and what we're about and having that humility really helps as well. Um, and probably the fact that I've not been scarred by the industry, perhaps, from previous experiences, just mean I'm just having a shot at it and loving it and thinking, well, what's the worst that can happen? Just see how long it lasts for. So, yeah, certainly something I've really enjoyed doing. Have you, have you looked at the, the men that have been in there in that long time that you've been at Cambridge that have, that have been players of a certain ilk and turned into managers of a certain ilk? Has been bits and bobs that they've done where you kind of thought, hmm, I won't be nicking that bit. I might be nicking a little, another little part of it. I think we're all thieves in coaching. You, you, you take the best and the worst off of everybody, really, and, and that's the way it is. There's only so many training sessions. There's only so many ways of playing the game. Um, so in the end, having a real clear idea of what we are, signing the right players that can do that, and most importantly, when the pressure's on, being consistent with those A, behaviours, but B, the way that you play, that's been the major, major thing for me and for all the X's and O's and all the statistics and data that's out there. In the end, this is a people business. You've got to get the best out of people and build relationships. And that's where I think we've done well. What's it been like managing a Premier League former player, total footballing legend, who is older than you? Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> He's That's a, Wes Houlihan, if yeah, anyone's Houlihan was under a rock. Unbelievable for us. Like last season, his influence on the team in the promotion year was, was crazy. And, I, and I've said this, and this isn't disrespectful to anyone, because the team effort, and I think the strength of our team has been the team for the two years, really. But at the same time, if you're going to say the most pivotal player that, that helped us get promotion, it, it was him, because it's no shock that the strikers had such a good year when they had him providing for him. And... Um, an absolute joy. The biggest disappointment was that our supporters didn't get to see him because obviously the, the behind closed door stuff. So it was great also, that they he were wasn't playing to... on Tuesday nights, was <laughs> yeah. he? No, he never he played on Tuesdays. Home. But, um... but that, that was a specific way that you managed him though, wasn't it? Yeah, I think when players get to a certain age, you have to work out how you get the best out of them. And in the early part of the year, we, we'd use him on a Saturday and a Tuesday and probably not see the best of him on either day. And in the end, you, you want those players at the best level. And he made everybody better, there's no doubt. And as a character and like no ego, just a top, top man, um, incredibly talented. I've been watching the club for 30 years. I've not seen a better player play for us. And I think the supporters loved him and the influence on the team was amazing. Um, and the players loved him as well. So we found the best formula for him. But in the end, um, yeah, I'm the lucky guy that got the job at the time that he decided he wanted to come and play for us. So we wanted to hear about Cambridge United we wanted you to, to lift the lid and, and show us how and why we're so wrong and, and hearing you talk about your job um, kind of answers the question I think in, in, in many ways to be honest it's, it's an unbelievable job and it's no surprise when you talk to you for more than five minutes what you're getting out of a group of players but we also got you on here to give us some insight that we wouldn't ordinarily get and that George and I try our best but we simply can't provide you have managed against Sunderland and against Wickham this season they will take to the field at Wembley on Saturday uh, for a spot in the championship. Um, a, a quick question on the playoff semi-finals. We had MK against Wickham, opposites attracting, and, and Wickham doing the business off the back of a really strong first leg. Um, and then you had Sunderland and Sheffield Wednesday, Battle of the Giants, uh, which Sunderland nicked right at the death, right? We'll start with Wednesday and Sunderland. <laughs> what did you make of those two legs? Did it go similarly to how you expected? Well, look, first off, those four teams stuffed us. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not best placed to comment, if I'm honest. Um, I thought the standard's been brilliant. The league one's a league of two leagues, there's no doubt. The Giants are, are way ahead, and, and there's the rest of us trying to fight out in the, in the bottom half to try and make up that ground and, and catch up with them. And um, there's some top, top teams. I think the playoff games in the main have been what you expect them to be all the time. A little bit unpredictable, a little bit cagey, quite close. You know, someone might dominate large periods of a game or a section, but all the second legs, you've gone into the second legs, the games are wide open and, and ready, to be, uh, ready to be won. I think in this game, the purist would have loved this to have been the final at a packed Wembley Stadium, probably. Um, but I thought, it was a, I thought it was a really good game. Both teams have um, played well, gone into the playoffs in really good form. I think Sunderland are in a, a brilliant spot since Alex Neal's taken over. I think their record is exceptional. And they've scored so many late goals in that period of time. It wasn't a surprise to me that they ended up nicking it late. And um, it was always going to be fairly close and fairly cagey. But, you know, we went up there a few weeks ago got spanked 5-1 after getting sent off, player sent off after 10 minutes. But the whole setup and the stadium and everything was just 
just class, really. So, yeah, a, a, a great game to be part of and, and a, really good, um, a really good occasion. And I don't know, if, if you said who's going who's gonna to win it out of them, I, I actually fancy Sheffield Wednesday going into the playoffs. We, we did too. Just, just with regards to the, to the late goals, is that something that we have to credit Alex Neal for? Is that something that he's doing or is it a case of they're getting on the right side of these <coughs> at the right time, you know, the back end of the season, these things are falling into place for them? Because it has been unbelievable how many they've scored in kind of, I think it's post the 80th minute. Yeah, look, quite a lot of attacking midfield players, I think, and options in wide areas that give them a real freshness late in games where they don't lose the... They can have that same ability to go and chase a game later on. And I think the second side of it, he's really worked on that defensive solidity of the team and they've been in games longer. So, obviously, you can only win them if you're in them. So, he's given them a real chance of winning them late by keeping them in games that, that perhaps they might have lost previously. So... Um, they're certainly a team that go the distance and th th that sets itself up for a final that could go the whole way. And, and Wickham are managed by a wizard, uh, Gareth Ainsworth, the only wizard manager uh, in the EFL. What's it like when you come up against Wickham Wanderers? They are um, very, very specific in the way that they have played over the last few years, incredibly effective at scoring goals, keeping them out and winning football matches over time. Um, but you have to tell your team to expect a certain thing. You have to tell your team where... Wickham might be vulnerable, where you might be able to hurt them. Um, what sort of things were you saying to your players before games against Wickham? Well, we struggled against Wickham. Every top team we've played this year, of the two games, we've done well in one of them. If, if not both, we've done well in at least one of them. Wickham blew us away both times. Now, part of that is we played them on a Tuesday, having played Oxford and having played Ipswich. And for us, when we played the top, top teams back-to-back -back Saturday, Tuesday, we found that really difficult in the second game um, to be able to go again because of how much physically we need to give them games. We, we went to Wickham on a Tuesday night away from home and um, they'd been playing three at the back for ages and, and they had a little wobble around January, February time. Um, so we did all our prep work on it. The team sheet comes in and I'm thinking... I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. I don't know what they're going to play. You, would, you, would you pass that on? Obviously, you, tap, you chat with your staff, but I mean, I suppose it's quite important that the players that look at you and think, the manager's got no clue what's going to yeah. happen here. I mean, so. literally, I wrote, I wrote the wrong team up. <laughs> we, we came in after the warm-up and I said, lads, they've warmed up like this. This is the team. And neither were right. Neither were right. They, were, they did something completely different. We spent all week saying, and in fairness, this is true, every goal kick, don't worry about going and setting a press because they're just going to go big off of everything. They're not interested. Even if the first pass goes to a centre-half, the next one's going big. Well, they started splitting to the sides of the six-yard box and they started building their way up the pitch. Lads are looking over at me and going, Barnes, what's happening? Okay, okay, that's League One. League Two now. We already know. Do we have an update on the score? I wasn't allowed to bring my phone on, which really helps me in this position. Still one now. Cool. Almost half time, of course. Uh, we've got Mansfield through against Northampton. Uh, where do we want to start with this one, Ali? Well, I'm interested to know what Mark thinks uh, would have managed against Mansfield last season. Of course, at that level, have always had a, a very impressive squad on paper, but not always uh, achieved what they set out to achieve. They're on the brink now at Wembley. Uh, and, and last night, particularly, I thought, defending their lead... Um, with Clough having made some, some fairly brave changes from first leg to second leg, three substitutions and a change of shape. Um, those things must be quite scary to do as a manager because you know if it goes wrong, everyone's going to point to that, but it could not have gone any better. They defended their box and their lead magnificently. Yeah, that's just the cost of being a manager because if you do nothing and it goes wrong, you get slaughtered as well. So in the end, you're only right if you win. So you have to carry that burden a little bit. But I think he's used his squad really well. I think it's a remarkable level of form where his teams over the years have probably had runs, good and bad. And um, when you consider they were right towards the bottom of the table, yeah. fair way into the season, the, yeah, the recovering, the consistency of them has been outstanding. And um, I think they've, they've, they've put themselves in a, in a really good position going into the final. And um, they've got a... They've got some good players in that squad, there's no doubt. I think he's signed well and, and built a good side. And, you know, Northampton, you've got to feel for him because that's a tough one to recover from after the last game of the season. And um, I think a lot of people would have thought they'd have found these, these playoff games really difficult having what they had happen on the last day of the season. For, for those of us who try and look into this and work out what Northampton went through, what impact that would have in a club who have never been in a professional dressing room, like how difficult would it have been for John Brady not only to pick himself up but also to go into his that dressing room afterwards and say lads we've got a game in four days here we need to bounce back because these are two huge matches are you going to mention your defeat to Harrogate at the end of last season yeah maybe I mean I was speaking I to think Jed, it's relevant to this answer I, I was speaking to Jed about this a little bit I think that late drama at the end of the season I think you've seen it across all the leagues that last bit 
getting across the line, the final bit, is so much harder than you think, and, and freak results happen. I mean, I don't know how I'd handle that situation, to be honest. I think as a manager, you react off of the emotion of the players. So whether they need a lift or whether they need a, a settling down or whatever, you, you just react and you're instinctive in those moments. But I think those next few days would have been incredibly challenging and difficult because no doubt their game finished, they won, they probably think, right, we're done. And then the other game still got 25 minutes to go or whatever it was. It's a, a, such a challenge to, to try and cope with that situation. So they've done well in order to keep those games playable, but they probably didn't hit the same level that they had done earlier in the season. Well, we don't know who they'll play at Wembley, so there's really not much point wasting the, the last few minutes on that. I wanted to ask you about something that George spoke uh, really well, I thought, biased, sure, Thank you. Uh, on our little-known podcast, Not the Top 20, on Monday. And that was uh, Rob Edwards, the Forest Green manager, the former Forest Green manager, um, winning promotion, winning the title in his first season uh, as a, a manager in the EFL, uh, and getting a job at Watford. Now, it's the sort of leap... That we it's the sort of leap that we haven't seen that often. Uh, and as someone like yourself, who is um, early on in their managerial career, making waves in it, uh, it must have been interesting to note that um, for the first time in a while, it feels like someone's really taking a punt on young managerial talent, not touting you for any moves. It's, oh, a, it's a very similar first full season in charge, you know, in terms of, of not having managed a full season in the EFL before coming into a club, probably not expected to... I mean, I know they won the league, but you, it was very similar in terms of what you've done, and now he's managing Watford next season. What I'm saying is you need to know the industry that you're in uh, as a manager. You've got to keep your head on a swivel. You've got to be across everything, and a young, talented manager getting a leap up like that must have been of interest to you and your peers. Uh, without doubt. I think any time you see young people getting a chance, whether it's players with clubs or coaches, there's, there's definitely a trend of younger coaches getting opportunities. And I, I think there's also a disrespect towards experienced coaches sometimes. Um, and, and you have to get that balance right that people that have been in the job long period of time and know the game inside out, they're, they're valuable. And Gary Waddock's assistant manager with me, he's, he's tread the path for years and, and he's really important. But when you see someone like Rob Edwards get that opportunity, I think it's massive. It's a huge jump to that level. He's done it. You look at lots of the other younger ones that are getting linked with jobs. Michael Duff's getting linked. Liam Manning's getting linked. Matt Taylor's getting linked. I'm the only one that hasn't been called or linked <laughs> with any job. <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us up here. My favourite bit about you being up is I saw when you first came on the stage, just before you came up, that Ali's written one handwritten note on your page, and it says, chat with Mark Bonner. And underneath, he's just written football manager, which initially I thought it meant he didn't know who you were. And then he, and then he said, it's like anyone playing football manager. So he kind of saved it there. But um, yeah, thanks, Mark. Best of luck for next season as well. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. On a night where... The Duchess and Duke of Cambridge were rumoured to be in Leicester Square. Really? At the Top Gun premiere, we had the King of Cambridge here. Well played. Seamless. Seamless. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you'll all agree that's been fantastic fun. An hour and a half's flown by. You were worried that you wouldn't fill it, but that's just you, Ali, but you got all the way through. Our thanks, obviously, to Jed and Mark. They were fantastic guests. And you've all been wonderful as well, of course. But... Let's, let's be honest, it's a room filled with family, friends and followers. Come and stand here, you two. Shout out NCT Six years, squad. of course, of the Not The Top 20 podcast. Your hosts, George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. <laughs>